Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. Tonight's show is on the history of modern Ukraine, from independence in 1991 to the illegal invasion by Russia one year ago. And we'll be exploring the making of modern Ukraine as well as the roots of the terrible conflict today. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at three new exhibitions one on the world's first named author, one on Irish history through photographs and a final one on the history of hairdressing. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on the history of modern Ukraine and to discuss the story of this remarkable and resilient country, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Taras Kuzio is Professor of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy and is an expert on politics, crime and security in Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia. His books include Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, 2017, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War and a new book published later this month, Genocide and Fascism, Russia's War against Ukrainians. Professor Judith Devlin is Emeritus Professor at the School of History at UCD and is an expert on Soviet and post-Soviet Russia and especially on the culture and politics of the Stalin era. And her books include the edited collection War of Words, Culture and the Mass Media in the Making of the Cold War in Europe. Dr. Marnie Hallett lectures in Russian and East European politics in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford and is an expert on the nexus of geopolitics, cartography, borders and nationalism within the former Soviet Union particularly Ukraine and she is working on a new book Ukraine and Imagined Borderlands Dr Connor Daly is a teaching fellow in Russian and Slavonic Studies at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on contemporary politics and the cultural history of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus and he's one of the co-organisers of Trinity's public lecture series Understanding Ukraine and will be speaking himself on Ukraine's Jewish heritage and you'll find details on how to attend the series by searching for Understanding Ukraine TCD on the web. Well you're all very welcome and later in the show I'll be talking to Dr Tanya Lokot, Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications at DCU and native of Ukraine she researches threats to digital rights, networked authoritarianism digital resistance and internet freedom and her most recent book is out in paperback next month, Beyond the protest square, digital media and augmented dissent. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And Taras, I might begin with you. And I suppose it's impossible to talk about the history of modern Ukraine and the history of Ukraine as a country without without thinking of, without having the, the terrible war going on at the moment, uh, influencing our thoughts. So would you be able to set out for us the roots of this conflict? Yes, I think it can be um, uh, reduced to, I think, three main ones. Um, The first is that Vladimir Putin has been in power for 23 years. He was very hostile to the disintegration of the Soviet Union. He still laments that. He has a great nostalgia for that. Um, And he um, wants to try to reverse that in some ways. Um, And during his time in office, he's re-Sovietized Russia, Um, And he's also undertaken a cult of what's called the Great Patriotic War um, and the cult of the tyrant and criminal Joseph Stalin. Secondly, um, what you've had is a transformation of Russian nationalism from the Soviet one, whereby um, in the Soviet Union, Ukrainians and Russians were described as separate and different peoples, but uh, very close. Um, Ukraine, for example, um, was a founding member of the United Nations in 1945. Uh, Stalin managed to negotiate three seats at the United Nations, USSR, uh, Ukraine and Belarus. Um, So you've moved from that Soviet position of different people but close to one which is the white Russian emigre that fled the Bolshevik Revolution and, and kind of lived in Europe in the 20s and 30s 
which argues that there are, there are no Ukrainians um, and there is no Ukraine. It's a, fi it's a fiction um, conjured up by Western countries to dismember or divide uh, the Russian people. So here, the Russian people are defined in the same way as Eastern Slavic people. There are great Russians, little Russians, Ukrainians, and white Russians, Belarusians. And the third factor is we should always link domestic and foreign policies in these kinds of regimes. So three years ago, Russia moved from an authoritarian uh, system to a dictatorship, basically a totalitarian dictatorship, with Putin be becoming de facto president for life. Um, and that has transitioned into an aggressive uh, domestic policy against dissent and an aggressive foreign policy against all forms of dissent. Putin um, um, believes or the Kremlin believes that they are fighting the West in Ukraine, because Ukrainians don't exist, of course. Um, and, and this is kind of like a proxy war against NATO and the West to move from a so-called US-led unipolar world to a multipolar world. But de facto, it's all down to the crucial question that Vladimir Putin has long had an obsession with Ukraine. He can't rebuild this kind of Russian Union without Kiev and Ukraine. Kiev is 600 years older than Moscow, for example. So, so the obsession is with Ukraine. Um, and he wants to go into Russian history as the gatherer of Russian lands, i.e. the gatherer of that Russian Union, the Ukrainians, Belarusians, and, and, and Russians. Um, and there is a parallel with Ireland that um, the British, like the Russians, never believed that the Irish or the Ukrainians were really fit for independence, um, and they needed to be led by more civilized superior people. So the analogy is very close and is something I've worked on, um, of course. And um, the, the big an analogous tragedy are the two famines, the Irish famine of the 1840s and the Ukrainian famine of the 1930s, which was both uh, destructive of culture, language and identity. So I think those are the, really the factors. And Judith, it's interesting, the Irish comparison. You know, if this was a show on the history of Ireland, you know, we might necessarily begin it in 1922 when Ireland became an independent state. But on the other hand, when you only have an hour, you have to start somewhere. And uh, it's impossible to tell the entire history of Ukraine. We could go back a thousand years. We go to the medieval period. We could go back to uh, the Russian Revolution of 1917. But maybe if you were to you know, tease out some of these questions of identity and when we're talking about Ukrainian identity and nationalism and we're talking about the Russian identity, you know, what are these historical roots that we should be aware of? Well, you know, there are, I think, uh, two kind of broad ways of looking at our traditionally uh, Ukrainian-Russian histories. And I mean, if you look at a Russian history textbook, they always go back to Kyiv. Um, and obviously, Ukrainians look back to Kyiv too. Um, the problem is the, the diversity. For, for the Russians, Kyiv automatically is a direct line of descent to Putin's Moscow, Putin's Kremlin today, basically. Um, although the Soviet view, as Taras was saying, was somewhat different. And I mean, I think the Soviets are extremely important, but not the whole story. So Ukrainian nationalism sort of begins as a sort of intellectual movement, really, basically, confined to Ukrainian intelligentsia in the 19th century. And it doesn't really become an effective um, national movement, a mass movement, um, really un, un, until later. And, and part of the reason for that is, of course, is modernization, uh, the spread of literacy. These things don't happen. And of course, the, the more complicated back history of Ukraine, just as uh, German nationalists used to ask the question, where is the German fatherland? Because, of course, Germany and Germans were scattered throughout Central Eastern Europe. The same, in a sense, holds true uh, of Ukrainians. Uh, Ukrainians were divided between different um, polities, different states in the 19th century and indeed earlier. Um, what changes is uh, the collapse of empire during the revolution. And there, in the period of a revolution and civil war between 1917 and 1920, uh, you have three, three separate uh, Ukrainian states or polities uh, are formed. Um, and this is what uh, forces, in a sense, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, uh, to create a, a sort of separate Ukrainian-Soviet Socialist Republic. And by dint of doing that, they then give a sort of focus uh, for Ukrainian nationalism. That's one. And then they apply very radical, very cruel, very often, 
initially not 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 so cruel. Initially, they are just uh, um, promoting. You know, it's been called you know an affirmative action empire, the Soviets, um, by one historian, and by that he means that at least in the nineteen twenties they're trying to spread literacy, develop, and there is a kind of Ukrainian cultural revival in that period. Stalin's thirties crushes changes most of that, but not the actual institutions of a kind of Ukrainian statehood. And Ukrainian U- Ukraine emerges from the Second World War. In some respects, uh, it, it's certainly territorially larger. And in fact, the most interesting, well, in, in, in terms of this discussion, one fact that might be worth pointing to is that for the first time, because um, the, po- the borders of Poland shift 200 miles west. You have great population exchanges of hundreds of thousands of people. You have Ukrainian people for the first time are united in one uh, state, as it were, in one, within one set of borders after the Second World War. Um, and lots of the problems of dispersal, etc., um, and are, are at that stage, um, if you like, solved. You have Ukrainian state um, and then with uh, in the period of Khrushchev and subsequently, uh, you have um, a kind of Communist Party leaders uh, who can speak up more for the actual interests of Ukraine, which they do to different extents. But um, at least in terms of statehood, in terms of symbols, in terms of potential political leadership, these are generally being put in the spread of literacy, education, the, the opportunity to develop a national culture and a mass um, a mass movement, if you like, a national consciousness. A lot of this is sort of put in place really by Soviet policies, not always entirely intentionally. And Taras mentioned the famine of 1932 to 1933, and that's something that is, you know, debated by historians. Was it a genocide? And uh, I think the UN recognises it as, as genocide. Uh, certainly a hugely traumatic event in Ukrainian history with millions dying. And how significant is that in the development of, I suppose, Ukrainian identity? Well, it's, you know, a deeply, deeply traumatic uh, event. Um, and... Of course, it's remembered differently by different people. Um, so some Western historians like Norman Neimark, for example, say, yes, it's definitely a genocide. Um, a, a line that was more typical of sort of emigre historians, obviously the Soviets uh, didn't want to uh, and never acknowledged really the, um, the profound tragedy um, and the brutality of Soviet policy. So although we might say it wasn't a genocide in the sense that the Nazis, uh, you know, the Holocaust was, in the sense that the aim of policy was to uh, destroy all the Ukrainians, it wasn't in that sense. Others also suffered terribly uh, from collectivization. Uh, but it certainly had, you know, it was incredibly cruel. Uh, it destroyed the Ukrainian peasantry in the sense as a potential, as a sort of cultural and potential political force, basically. And, and of course, it um, precipitates mass movement. All right, it's from the countryside to the towns, to the cities, uh, the developing cities of, of Russia. That is already beginning in the 1920s, but of course it accelerates tremendously in the 30s um, and indeed um, post-war as well. So it, it's a, a, a tragic, traumatic event. And of course it also uh, wrecked the uh, agriculture in, in Russia as well and um, also Kazakhstan and the enormous numbers of victims. But uh, it's certainly a great trauma and it uh, fuels uh, resentment, undoubtedly. So, Connor, talk to us then about the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the creation of an independent Ukrainian state. How inevitable was that and how did that come about? I think when in the last days of the Soviet Union, after the processes of, of glasnost, of perestroika, it became no longer tenable to keep the Soviet Union together. Uh, throughout the, the former Soviet Union, Groups that had been latent had been working throughout that period, like uh, Ruch in, in Ukraine, um, organised their, their citizens and there was a referendum at the end of 1990. The outcome of this referendum um, was that the majority of citizens of the Soviet Republic of Ukraine uh, agreed to separate. And that includes, uh, by the way, the eastern parts of Ukraine with dominant Russian-speaking populations, including the Republic of, including Crimea itself which had only been part of Ukraine since 1954. 
but, but essentially, um, a lot of historians w- would take the view that by creating, when, when Lenin created the Soviet Union and in the 1920s implemented the, the policies of karenizatsia, which is indigenization. So we have to remember that in the 1920s, there was a great drive to promote national languages, especially, for example, the Ukrainian language was heavily promoted throughout the 1920s in Ukraine. Uh, the historian... Ivan Zuber, the publicist writing in the 1960s, is looking back with nostalgia from Khrushchev's um, sort of early Brezhnev homogenized Soviet uh, culture. And he's looking back with nostalgia at the 1920s and 30s. And he actually points to a very impressive statistic that in the year 1930, 80% of all of the books published in Ukraine, in Soviet Ukraine, and 89% of all of the uh, the news publications, the journalism, was written in the Ukrainian language. And that's something that was destroyed. This is part of Putin's narrative about Lenin artificially created Ukraine. But we have to remember, and I think a very important point, and I want to take us back here, is that we need to remember that Ukraine is a contested space. And if you look at historians like like Serhii Plochi of Harvard University and, and famously Timothy Snyder of, of Yale, what, what they try to do in their explication is to point out the confluence of empire. So we have to remember that the land of Ukraine was sitting at various uh, points in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, obviously in the Russian Empire. There's, there's confluence of faith. So we have the Catholic Polish speaking on the left hand side, if you like, in, in, the, in, the, in Galicia and the lands of where now Lviv is, is located, the former uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And on, on, on the other side of the border, uh, there's very much uh, the, the Russian uh, tradition. So and then the, with the part Partitions of Poland uh, in the late 1770s, you have a whole new uh, dynamic coming into play. And Marley, that brings us into very nicely your work on nationalism and identity in Ukraine. And you very much see those those twin themes becoming ever more important uh, during that period from 1991 on. You have the Orange Revolution, you have uh, the protests in November 2013 and after that and all the way leading up into the, the, the conflict with Russia. Yeah, I think the history we've just outlined really um, sets the scene quite nicely. And the fact that when the country did become an independent state in 1991, it did have you know, an underlying national sense or an, an understanding of what is Ukrainian identity. But this is very much embedded within ethnic understandings of what it was. Speaking about uh, the fact that the borders changed repeatedly throughout history, you also had several different national groups that were not ethnically Ukrainian living within the space or the territory that became Ukraine in 1991. And this is a reality that is often overlooked. Um, When we talk about Ukraine, we often talk about the division between Ukrainians and Russians, often using the Dnipro as a division, um, both culturally, ethnically, linguistically, even politically. Um, However, often what is not recognized is that there were many other ethnic groups that found themselves within Ukraine, and also Ukrainians who found themselves in territories um, outside of Ukraine and on the borders on the other side. This then led to um, almost a confused sense of um, understanding of what is the nation and nationalism within Ukraine from 1991, even moving to the contemporary day. So in nationalism studies, we often talk about ethnic and civic understanding. So while there was perhaps more of an understanding of what is an ethnic Ukrainian, there was not this civic sense of identity or a cohesive understanding of what it meant who belong to the Ukrainian state. Uh, we see this emerging or manifesting, I suppose, uh, throughout um, Ukraine's time as being an independent state. At different points, uh, when there was sort of a push to um, grow the sense of identity or create a cohesive identity, but yet it didn't really manifest um, in a way until the Euromaidan in 2013 and 2014. Much work has been done on this, um, you know, tracking opinions and identities from leading up to the 2013-2014, including by Taras. Uh, there's really fascinating work. But what we see from 2013 is it really did mark a shift in how individuals understood their states uh, and their desire 
to belong or to identify with their state in a way that hadn't been seen before. Okay, well, we are talking history, and tonight we are talking about the history of Ukraine. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Dr. Tanya Lokot about the role that civic activism and protest has played in Ukraine's history all the way up to the Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history, and tonight we are talking about the history of Ukraine, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Tanya Lokot, Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications at DCU. A native of Ukraine, she researches threats to digital rights, networked authoritarianism, digital resistance, internet freedom and internet governance in Eastern Europe. And her most recent book is out in paperback next month, Beyond the Protest Square, Digital Media and Augmented Dissent. Tanya, look, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And it'd be interesting to maybe talk about the role that civic activism and protest has played in Ukraine's history. And I suppose, especially in that period, maybe between 2005 and 2013. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure pleasure to be joining um, such a stellar group. Um, and yeah, I think it's fair to say that protests have really played a key part in the history of Ukraine, most both the recent history, but I think also the history that goes further back. And a, a large part of the reason for why civil society and civic mobilization and resistance have played such an important part is that we often think of um, Ukraine as a kind of country in the middle of things, right? Um, It's always been kind of between various empires, between um, various larger states that have fought to take control of its territory or of its people. And so almost in a way, it's almost been natural that um, for Ukrainians, the, the reaction to these events or to these historical events, including conflicts, has been to resist, to struggle for independence, autonomy, agency, um, national identity. Um, and this history obviously goes much further back. You know, the first Ukrainian war of independence in uh, the 20th century was fought in 1917, 1921. Uh, then we had um, student protests against the ruling Communist Party at the dusk of the Soviet Union in 1990. And then, of course, we come to the events that are, I think, much, much more known popularly. Um, So the Orange Revolution and the protests in 2004-2005. And then the Euromaidan protests, or as they're also known, the Revolution of Dignity in 2013-2014, which have, I think, because they received so much more media attention, they're the protests that everyone knows. And what actually kicked off those protests? You read and there's all the allegations of disputed election results, for example, with the Orange the Orange mm-hmm. Revolution and protests. What exactly did take place? So in, in the Orange with the Orange Revolution, they the protests really did emerge in, in response to what many in Ukrainian society felt were rigged elections when um, the party of regions headed by Viktor Yanukovych, who then went on to become president later, um, was accused of basically stealing the election by falsifying election results from the opponent, Viktor Yushchenko. Um, and this really caused, I think, mass um, mass discontent because it was pretty clear that the election was rigged. But because the party was the ruling party, it was also harder to contest it through kind of regular means. So that's why there was a popular protest, which was, of course, supported by opposition politicians because, you know, they felt also that they've been wrong. But it really was um, a people's protest as well. Um, And I think this was also a very... um, visually um, evident um, discontent because, you know, they occupied the the city square, there were tents, people were kind of spending time um, really standing for what they believed to be, you know, the rightful um, victor in the elections. And, you know, because also as a result of the protest, the the, um, election was uh, recounted and Yushchenko did actually win. It turned out that he actually did win the elections. So I think that was really the first time um, that people kind of noticed Ukraine on the global stage as a country that was fighting for uh, for democracy and for fair elections. And then the loser in that election is elected then himself in 2010. And in a way, his resistance or his reluctance to agree to those closer connections to, to Europe and the EU seems to have uh, sparked off then, and his desire for closer ties with Russia sparked off then the protests in November 2013. Um, indeed, that, that was the case. And um, um, so obviously, um, you know, he won the elections um, in 2010. And then the years after that, so the, the three, almost four years after that, um, we could 
you could see Ukraine kind of becoming a, a more corrupt, a less transparent and a less just society uh, where the ruling party and the president uh, were basically using their power to, you know, to, to make themselves richer and to make the country poorer. Um, and I think, you know, there's also this really clear um, sense that even though he understood the importance of having ties with Europe and having a relationship with Europe, he was also very closely tied with Russia. Uh, and in a way, at that decisive moment, when he was just about to sign the association agreement with the EU, um, he decided not to do it. And um, it's very clear that there was Russian influence at play. Um, and again, it's really interesting to think about this protest, which was obviously really unprecedented in terms of numbers and just the amount of people that participated, that it started as a, pro a very small protest um, against his decision not to, to align with Europe. Um, but then it, what, what really drove it to become a mass protest was then um, about a, a week or two into the protest in November 2013, um, there was a small group of people in the city square in Kiev, and they were brutally beaten by Ukrainian police. And that's when the protest just ballooned overnight. Like there were thousands and then hundreds of thousands of people uh, who joined the protest. So it became more than a protest against um, changing the path from Europe and turning to Russia. It also became a protest against police brutality, against corruption and abuse of power, and a protest for human rights and free expression, transparency and dignity, which I think made it the kind of iconic event that uh, many know it to be today. And that revolution of dignity did result in the president having to leave office and a, and a, and a new government being put in place. Indeed, it did, and I think again that's that's a testament to um, you know the the power of of popular discontent, but also I think just the overwhelming number of protesters. Like you know there were thousands of hundreds of people all across Ukraine, not just in the capital in Kiev, which is the the site that often kind of features and and news headlines, but these were truly uh, countrywide protests, and even the Ukrainian diaspora. Um, join the protest in in any way they could, you know, from across the world. Um, so it did result in a change of government. It resulted in, in um, you know, a, a new president, a new um, cabinet, um, a new parliament. And then, you know, a much more hopeful and kind of um, democratic and reform-driven path um, that Ukraine has taken on. And it also obviously resulted in, in Russia reconsidering, you know, um, what its goals were with regard to Ukraine um, and then um, daring to um, first occupy Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine and um, start the events that then resulted in Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in, in February 2022. Uh, which, of course, brings us up to exactly uh, the crisis we're living through today. And Tanya, what is it like for you as a, as a Ukrainian working in Ireland uh, to be here while this terrible conflict is going on in your home country? I would like to say that it's, it's new and unfamiliar, but um, because I've been living and working outside Ukraine um, for, for the better part of a decade now, um, I would say it's actually, it's like, it's almost like feeling like I'm back in 2014, because, you know, I remember very well this experience of things happening in my own country and being far away from it and trying to find any possible way that I could, like millions of other Ukrainians, to participate, to do something, to contribute. And I think the lessons learned in 2014 uh, for Ukrainians who are now scattered abroad in much larger numbers um, have really have really stuck. Like we, we understand the importance of um, volunteering for to help our country, we understand the importance of building networks. And I think a lot of the networks that we built back in 2014 are still alive today, you know, and that's why, like the volunteer movement and all the civic civil society organizations, they're so active and they're so powerful in Ukraine right now, because they are built on these networks that have existed for, for much longer uh, than the full-scale invasion. I think in terms of Irish reaction, in terms of the global response, it's been overwhelmingly supportive of Ukraine and uh, rejecting Putin's illegal invasion. It's also displaced so many Ukrainians and we have, you know, a large number of Ukrainians here in our country. Are you hopeful about the future? Are you pessimistic? Uh, what does it mean for you, for your family, for, for those who have settled here? Um, I think it's obviously a time of, I think, unprecedented change and, and perhaps um, chaos for many Ukrainians. 
Um, but I really like what historian Timothy Snyder says about Ukraine. And he says one of the discerning traits of Ukraine is that it learns from its history, but it also is always looking towards the future. And so I like to think that, you know, for us, it's not about learning from our history and then creating some kind of myth to explain, you know, why we should be running uh, the better part of the world like Russia does. But for us, it's really about learning from history and learning from everything that we're going through to then have a better chance of building a future. So I'm optimistic um, and what we're fighting for, I think, you know, we have every chance of a bright future, however long it might take us to get there. Okay, well, my thanks, Dr. Tanya Lokot, Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the School of Communications at DCU, for joining us tonight. And certainly we on Talking History uh, would echo those sentiments there. We'll be back with more on the history of Ukraine right after this break. Welcome back. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108. Tonight we're debating the history of Ukraine and our panel of experts, Professor Taras Cusio, Professor Judith Devlin, Dr. Marnie Hallett, Dr. Connor Daly. And before the break there, we heard from Dr. Tanya Lokot. Uh, Taras, I want to bring you in on some of the issues that we have been discussing during the show. And also, I suppose, in terms of what happened then when Russia launched that invasion of Crimea in 2014. And I suppose... Uh, a war began which is still continuing. It didn't just start with the invasion a year ago. No, no. Um, I mean, I mean, the the territorial claims towards Crimea have existed since 1992, and they've existed across the entire Russian political spectrum. Um, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in jail, um, supports the annexation of Crimea, as do many Russian Democrats. So this has high support in Russia beyond, shall we say, the the Kremlin. And I think we need to uh, bear in mind that uh, Russia and Ukraine um, began building their states after 1992 in different ways. Um, In Moscow, in the Soviet Union, there were no Russian institutions. They were just Soviet. Um, And when Russia became an independent state in 1992, it hijacked and took over Soviet institutions in Moscow, KGB, Ministry of Defense, Foreign Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Internal Affairs, etc., etc., Um, And so Russian and Soviet identity were always the same in the Soviet Union, and they've continued to be the same. So Russians don't have an identity which is which is um, which is maintained within the borders of the Russian Federation. It's a bigger identity, which is Soviet, Tsarist, Eurasian, whatever. Ukrainians completely had a different approach to identity after 1992, and they had to build their state from the bottom up because there was nothing really in Kiev. Ukraine had, you know, just communist uh, institutions. Russia was there very different in that sense. Um, The Russian Soviet Republic never had its own separate communist party or, or sort of academy of sciences. So Russian state building was always top down. And therefore, it's not that surprising that the former KGB, in the manner of Vladimir Putin, came to power in the late 1990s because they had been taken over by the Russian Federation back in sort of 1991-92. And therefore, Russia inherited this anti-Western inferiority complex, which has always existed in Russia for centuries, and this xenophobic anti-Westernism, which never existed in Ukraine. There is no anti-Americanism or anti-Western xenophobia. Ukrainians feel that they are part of Europe. And so there's already a clash of identities, if you want to call it civilization differences. What the war has done, both in 2014 and 2022, has put the changes in Ukrainian identity on steroids. And that always happens in history in any in every country. When you have bloodshed, war, conflict, um, the, the, the transformation identity speeds up from evolutionary to revolutionary changes. And what you've had, especially since the invasion, is that um, Ukrainian-Russian identity has divorced forever. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Um, what has happened is that that anti-Russianism, which existed always in Western Ukraine, which said it was negative towards the Russian people and the Russian state, uh, has now spread to Eastern and Southern Ukraine. Um, And so the transformation has been greatest amongst Russian speakers in Eastern and Southern Ukraine, who in the past had positive views about Russia, but they no longer do. In a recent poll, I I saw only 3% of Ukrainians have a positive view of Russians. 
And so today it's, it's completely changed and that affects language questions, it affects attitudes to history, it affects foreign policy. There is a, um, um, going back to the question of um, different groups in Ukraine, I would uh, kind of uh, question the idea that there are so many different ethnic groups in Ukraine. Recent surveys have shown that Ukrainian people who declare themselves to be ethnic Ukrainian in Ukraine are 95% of the population. Only 2% say they are ethnic Russian, which means that Ukraine is the fourth most nationally homogenous country in Europe. So I think this idea that Ukraine is a multinational, regionally divided country is highly exaggerated. Debates about who belongs to the nation um, is nothing peculiar um, after independence. After Ireland became independent in the early 1920s, um, the debate was also, can you be Irish if you don't speak Gaelic? Um, and so that kind of debate um, continues. It continues in Wales today. So I think that that debate happened in Ukraine, but what the war 2014-2022 has done is that it's, it's made Russian-speaking Ukrainians very patriotic because they're the ones who have suffered. They're the ones who are doing a lot of the fighting. When I've gone to the front lines, um, and, and I, I went about five times prior to the invasion, um, a huge proportion of the Ukrainian soldiers are Russian speakers. Um, but they are Ukrainians. They feel themselves part of the Ukrainian nation. So actually, national integration has been enhanced by Russian military aggression. So the opposite has happened in Ukraine to what Vladimir Putin wanted. He wanted to destroy or wants to destroy Ukraine identity. He's actually enhanced it and made it stronger. Judith, where Crimea fits into this is very interesting because... I think it's it's easy for us maybe from Ireland to understand uh, Ukrainian independence and the desire to protect that at all costs. But Crimea does seem somewhat anomalous given that it was gifted to them in, is it 1954? Yes. Khrushchev typically sort of spontaneously uh, decided just to transfer Crimea uh, to Ukraine. And this is partly because, of course, uh, Ukrainian independence per se was fictitious. You know, the, the key decisions about everything were always made in Moscow. Um, and although Taras was sort of saying, oh, the, the Russians didn't have any um, independent uh, entities of their own of statehood, actually, there was a Russian Communist Party. I mean, it, you know, the LSFSR, it had its Communist Party. But essentially, um, greater Russian nationalism. Uh, or exist especially after the war, was revived after the war, this kind of quasi-imperial identity. Um, so it, it could look very generous. He did it because it was supposedly the 300th anniversary of the Treaty of Pyrrhyslav, but in other words, of the union of Western ter- some Western territories previously belonging to Poland with, uh, with Russia, uh, the growing Russian empire. Um, but as I say, essentially, that was, it, it didn't really matter, it didn't change anything. Um, but when, as uh, Taras was saying, when, when um, Putin took, invaded, essentially, Crimea and took it over, it was extremely popular in Moscow. I remember being in Moscow at the time and the radio, I mean, it was hair-raising. I sort of felt, it sounds like Berlin 1938, to be honest with you. And people were going around with these little ribbons, you know, sort of this nationalist uh, orange, black and something else ribbons, uh, indicating how pleased they were. And if you talk to people... They sort of said, oh, yes, well, I remember these wonderful holidays we used to have in Crimea. Emotional politics, uh, something very easily manipulated by people like uh, Putin, uh, I think. So Crimea, um, Crimea, for in a sense, this kind of revivication of Russia, you know, the make Russia great again, that resonates definitely, I think, in Russia. And it helps Putin in his nefarious purposes. Um, Crimea, of course, only actually becomes part of the Russian Empire in, in the late 18th century under Catherine the Great. Uh, and it was uh, really you know, uh, populated by you know, Tatars. It was you know, a, a different polity. Uh, and uh, ethnically, you know, there was a, a different, it was a Muslim uh, as well. So it was it's a very late incorporation into Russia and the understanding the Russians have that this somehow is, you know, integral to Russia from time immemorial is, of course, mistaken. But is uh, it integral to Ukraine? Well, my understanding, but Taras uh, and, uh, will certainly correct me I'm on this, but uh, I, I think that 
uh, it was a people you know, that, that in Ukraine, although there is a, a large Russian population which wanted to, uh, did indeed, uh, associated with the naval bases, which wanted to, re, you know, sort of to reconnect with Russia. Uh, but the Tartar population uh, was um, very preferred belonging to Ukraine, largely because, of course, they had been the, the among the many national minorities that were victims of Stalinism. The Tatars, in particular, were they were all deported from Crimea after uh, in, in, towards the end of the war uh, for supposed collaboration with the Nazis. This was really untrue, but and they were dumped in Central Asia and only allowed to come back uh, under Khrushchev. And of course, that's a great resentment. So, of course, the Tatar element preferred being with Ukraine. And Marnie, that connects with your work on on Ukraine being an imagined borderland, that there are these lines that that are being contested and challenged. No, indeed, there are. And I think, I mean, it speaks so much of what the conversation has been about previously when we think about Ukraine as a space sitting between Russia and Europe, or whether this be Russia and the EU, uh, the European empires, as well as the Russian empire. There have been so many border changes throughout time, which is which leads a state to become very complicated and identities are very complicated as we've talked about through this whole conversation. Understanding the state then in the contemporary day uh, requires us to first and foremost recognize that it became an independent state in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, even though the way that Ukraine is often talked about refers, some ways undermines the sovereignty and its independence. For example, the way that in Russian we often talk about na Ukraina, suggesting on the borderland. In English, we are just as guilty as there are many English speakers who talk about Ukraine as the Ukraine, suggesting that it is still sort of a republic. This is true in many European languages as well. I think this is really important in the East, in the West, to recognize that it is an independent state. It has territorial integrity. It has political autonomy. Um, Even though this hasn't been upheld repeatedly throughout history, um, especially since 1991, we saw this, in 2014, we saw this on the 24th of February. However, I think it is really important for us to see it as a state and not as a borderland of the East, as Russia does, a borderland as the West, which perhaps arguably we need to recognize that we have done. Um, much research or indications have suggested that the European Union or NATO have used Ukraine as a buffer zone. Um, in this way, I think it's fundamental that we don't see it as a borderland, a buffer zone, or the space in between, but rather we recognize it as a state that became independent in 1991 and will continue to be such going forward. And Connor, it's certainly clear that Putin is obsessed with Ukraine and he sees it as very much central, as we've heard, to his conception of what of what Russia should be and must be and that uh, Ukraine therefore must cease to exist. But I think, was it always inevitable then that he would launch the kind of invasion that he did a year ago. And I suppose the thing that caught, I think, most people by surprise is just how his plans quickly proved to be um, ill thought out that the so-called second largest army in the world um, found that it was marred in all kinds of difficulties and was facing a, a, a national resistance that was able to stop the army in its tracks. I think Taras has already highlighted a key point, which is that Russian foreign policy is driven by Russian domestic policy. And the attack on Ukraine is something that Putin was compelled to do for internal reasons, that the economy had been struggling, had been becalmed, if you like, since the end of the of the Medvedev presidency. So Putin comes back in for two more terms. He needs a narrative. He needs something to say. And, and he picks the national story. So is it surprising that they were unable to take Kiev in, in three days? It's not surprising. We have to remember Putin is isolated. During the COVID crisis, he met hardly anybody. We, we know the images from the media of him sitting at the end of long tables. He's extremely isolated. He has very few uh, confidants. It appears that he was made to believe by sources inside the FSB, as opposed to the army, that it was realistic that there was sufficient support inside Ukraine from the likes of Midvichuk, uh, so certain people from the former party of regions who were pro-Russian, that there was sufficient uh, support for Russia, that they would be um, greeted with flowers, the throwing of caps in the air. Uh, This, of course, 
to, to nobody's surprise, uh, turned out to be not uh, feasible. I just want to say, though, that there's one thing I would recommend the listeners to read, because I think the core of our, our discussion this evening has been about where is the location of Ukrainian identity? Is it ethno-nationalist or is it something else? And there's an extremely interesting essay written by Yaroslav Ritsak, who's a professor of history at the Catholic University of Lviv, happens to be in charge of the Jewish Studies programme. And he's written a fascinating essay called What Do We Write About When We Write About Ukraine? And it's all about the reconciliation of complex narratives and about how Ukrainians are increasingly finding their location um, in in civic, in civic, and in the future rather than in the past, and and that's why, for example, um, the figure, the very controversial figure of Stepan Bandera, um, it's it's now being encouraged to think of him in in favour of, of of a Ukrainian nationalism that we need to understand and that is based on civic structures. I have never read anything that suggests that Bandera was anything other than a very extreme. You know, so he, he comes from. Um, Poland, interwar Poland, comes to the fore in the end of the 1930s uh, in this uh, Ukrainian or, or, or UN, which is a sort of, um, you know, at that stage is embracing uh, terrorism. That's because, they, of course, they're, they're subject, the Ukrainians are subject, they're a large minority in interwar Poland and they're subject to discrimination, increasing repression in the 1930s. And the, uh, they have links with uh, the Abwehr, the, the German intelligence, the Nazis, uh, and who helped them apparently organise things. They, they go in, there are two battalions of people recruited from they, they were popular in um, pre-war with the young and then they go they take part in uh, Operation Barbarossa there are two divisions uh, as, as I understand it Roland uh, and Nachtigal uh, and some even later kind of more or less forced into or well actually lots and lots of apparently volunteer but quite a small number are actually recruited into um, uh, sort of the SS Galicia division 1943 um, Bandera was very extreme it was far too extreme even for the Germans I mean is he he you know proclaims uh, independence in June um, 1941 and he's or June or July anyway he's very soon arrested and imprisoned by the the Germans who find them altogether far too disruptive and uh, disobedient etc and extreme. Uh, not that they really mind extremism, but it was a, a not, from their point of view, helpful extremism. They're also very anti-Semitic. Um, so, you know, so Bandera, there, there was, of course, a different, um, or another group uh, of OUN who were, who were less extreme. Um, but essentially, they end up fighting um, both the Soviets um, uh, and indeed the Nazis too for a while, but the Soviets too and after the war. Um, and it's that long kind of tale after the war. Uh, tens of thousands of them are arrested and uh, by the recovering Red Army and something like 200,000, I think, Ukrainians who were just simply links. They came from nationalist families, weren't necessarily women and children and so on, deported to Siberia. And I think I'm correct in saying that like, something like 96,000 are actually shot or killed in the course of combat with the Red Army. Uh, and again, tens of thousands um, are arrested. So Bandera... He's still that, a controversial figure in Ukraine. He's still a Ukraine very controversial figure. And I saw even... Yeah. Attempts mm-hmm. to order him, mm-hmm. uh, it was rejected by the Ukrainian mm-hmm. parliament in 2019 that for some he's a hero, but for others he's a much more dangerous. And, and it should be remembered, I mean, this is partly because um, I think it was Taras was talking about uh, Galicia and its its um, particular identity and the particular kind of Ukrainian nationalism that developed there. Um, when Bandera goes to uh, Ukraine, uh, to Soviet Ukraine, his message isn't liked. You know, Ukrainians in Soviet Ukraine Ukrainians don't go for it, as I understand it. So, I mean, he he was ab initio. There were also a vast number of Ukrainians who actually took part in the kind of red partisans, I mean, the pro-Soviet partisans. Taras, in the final part of the show, though, I do want to talk about the invasion of Ukraine. And your new book shows how it has led to the biggest military conflagration and refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. You've talked about the global ramifications of it. But how has it turned into this people's war with this huge volunteer movement, this coming together of civil society, the international support that has been marshaled? It has been quite a remarkable uh, reaction against the invasion and a coming together of all these different elements. Yes, I mean, I think the the way to uh, look at this is that the Kremlin, Putin and the Kremlin, believed their own stereotypes and myths of Ukraine. It's difficult to find people in Moscow who actually understand Ukraine as a country. 
And they were convinced that um, majority of, of little Russians, as they saw Ukrainians, would greet them as liberators. So they invaded with a very small number of troops, 175,000. Now, usually you need two to three times more troops invading than defending. Um, and Ukraine at that time had about 300 to 400,000 security forces. And the reason was because they believed that it would be a cakewalk, um, that, that it would be a liberation, not um, resistance. Uh, in comparison, Czechoslovakia in 1968, Warsaw Pact invaded with quarter of a million troops. And that was for a country of 10 million. Ukraine has 45 million. So they, they completely got Ukraine wrong in Moscow. That was their first big mistake. The second biggest mistake was that they got the Western response wrong. They expected in Moscow the Western response to be as pathetic and weak as it had been actually in 2014, when the West basically just wrapped Russia on its knuckles, didn't really impose severe sanctions, um, and, and business continued with Russia. And Nord Stream 2 in Germany continued to be built. Um, and so the, the signal sent to Moscow was that, yes, the West will condemn the invasion, it will maybe oppose a few sanctions, but nothing really big will happen in terms of the Western response. So they got that wrong as well. Um, and what it's done, of course, it's, it's revolutionized Ukraine identity, reinvigorated the EU and NATO, and, and united the West. Russian troops had parade uniforms with them to hold a victory parade on the main street in Kiev. That's how confident they were this would happen. The president, Zelensky, we haven't mentioned that he's of Jewish background. He only exists because his grandfather was in the Soviet army fighting. The entire family was murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. And he won a landslide in 2019. Practically every region of Ukraine voted for him. And he's become, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, a Winston Churchill in terms of his ability to you know, lobby for and mobilize Western support, as, as we saw recently in Great Britain and then prior to that in Washington as well. I think that uh, Putin is in a difficult position now because what this has shown is that Russia does not have the second most powerful army in the world. Uh, Russia is a declining and very corrupt uh, great power. And so this is a decrepit army that can't function properly. It's also Soviet trained still and Soviet mentality because of that Putin legacy. Whereas the Ukrainian army has been NATO trained since 2014. And added to that, what you have is a war between two very different societies. Ukrainian society is horizontally organized, massive volunteer movement, very large civil society. Ukrainians who feel they are citizens, they have agency. They've had three revolutions in Ukraine, people's revolution since 1990. In Russia, they are not citizens. They are still subjects. They don't feel they have any agency or any ability to do any influence on the Russian state. So when Putin launched a mobilization in autumn of last year, 700,000 just fled from the country. So, um, so what you have is this vertically organized Russian society fighting this horizontally organized society, Soviet army on one side and the NATO-trained army on the other. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why Ukraine is winning. But also, let's remember, for Ukrainians, there's no other option. If Russia wins, there would be genocide. There would be the complete destruction of Ukrainian identity and culture, deportation of Ukrainians, executions, the closing down of schools. I mean, you name it. So Ukrainians will continue fighting um, as long as they have to. Okay, well, I think that's a very powerful note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my wonderful panel of experts, Professor Taras Kuzio of the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy, Professor Judith Devlin of UCD, Dr. Marnie Heilish of the University of Oxford, Dr. Connor Daly of Trinity College Dublin, and we also heard from Dr. Tanya Locott of DCU. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, Shannon Murphy on research and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.